Hey family, Dr. John Demartini is an internationally published author. He's also a global educator and the founder of the Demartini Method, which is absolutely fascinating and profound. What I can say right now, with his permission, is that he's also a new friend to me. This is a revolutionary tool in the Demartini Method that he uses for modern psychology. And as his website suggests, his life is a story of persistence, courage, inspiration, and the search for genius. You're going to get to enjoy him in all of that. He's the author of over 40 self-development books and manuscripts, such as his bestseller, The Breakthrough Experience, which we talk a little bit about. This book has been translated into over 36 languages, and you're going to enjoy listening and learning from him. So I'll just go ahead right now and say you're welcome. Enjoy. Dr. Dimitini, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh my goodness. Are you kidding? I'm so excited. I'm thrilled. I'm beyond. I just said, this is like the best gift ever to have you present. Thank you for so much of the work that you continue to do. And we have a lot to cover that I want to jump into, but before we do, I know you're on travel a tremendous amount of time to share your wisdom. Where are you joining us from right now? Right now I'm in Houston, Texas. I'm here, um, Visiting my children, they're, they're adults now, 30, 38 and 35 and 32, but um, I'm visiting here, it's passing through, I'm on my way to Lima, Peru in just a couple of days. Oh my goodness, well, you know, taking full advantage of the time we have with you, I'm just lifted in gratitude for it, and our children are similarly aged, so we've probably got some same experiences that we could share away from what we're talking about today, but tell me. Who were you before you were seven years of age? And what impact do you think your early childhood has made on this incredible person I'm talking with right now? Well, I had some challenges as a, as a youth. <clears throat> I had my arm and leg was turned in the way I was positioned in the womb. I guess I had a arm and leg twisted in <clears throat> and I had to wear braces on my arm and leg until I was around four. I also had to go to a speech pathologist because my pronunciation, my word pronunciation and sound pronunciation wasn't coming out right. So I had to go through and put strings and buttons in my, in my, in my mouth to try to strengthen muscles and practice these maneuvers. Then when I got to about six, I got into first grade and no matter what I did, it just wasn't working for reading. And, um, I was writing backwards because the way my hand was and I was reading words backwards and letters backwards and had dyslexia. And my teacher had my parents come to the school and said, I'm afraid your son's not going to be able to read, not going to be able to write properly, not going to be able to communicate effectively, probably won't go very far amount too much. <clears throat> had to wear a dunce cap. They wore a dunce cap in 1960. Yeah. And uh, so I had a dunce cap with a guy named Daryl Dalrymple. And, who now uh, has written how many books? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Mrs. McLaughlin, who was my first grade teacher, I never got to go back to her and say thank you, except in my head. You know, I closed my eyes and I envisioned her, but I never got to personally thank her because if she had not said that, um, I might not have had the voids that probably became the catalyst and the values that 
I later excelled at. So, you know, if, if you, no matter what you've been told, sometimes the things you've been told that you don't like may turn out to be one of the great gifts in life. So I always say anything you can't say thank you for can be baggage. Anything you can say thank you for can be fuel. And I turned that around. I didn't turn it around for 10 years, but at 17, I turned um, that challenge into a catalyst and a desire to want to conquer those issues. And slowly but surely, I was able to overrule that belief system and that limit and those capacities because I did have problems reading for till I was 18 years old. <clears throat> and you know, that's so incredible because uh, not only have I had moments in my life, I, it seems almost minimizing to say moments where that has been true for me or that could have been even better true for me had I crystallized it the way you just spoke it. Regardless, all of us, wherever we are today, if we have any consciousness of what's going on in the world stage, can truly intake that and use that not, not only to help us, but to help others. There's a video on your YouTube channel about your 13-step formula. That's the thing I really wanted to jump into right away um, and get you while you're fresh. It's called the 13-step manifestation formula behind the law of attraction, if I recall it well. And I think our family should all watch that. So you don't need to repeat it all here. And we're inviting them to do so uh, in this podcast. But let's do dive into step one of the 13 steps you cover, because it's teaching us about purpose and motivation. And a lot of us are rethinking that. And many of us had an opportunity to revisit that who've come through COVID. These are biggies for me. So if you can just leap forward and summarize the process, I hate to say summarize, it seems a cheat to the intelligent and thoughtful teaching, but talking about the benefits of being deliberate in deciding what your purpose is, it seems so simple. We both know that simple does not always mean easy, does it? No. <clears throat> you know, every human being, regardless of age, gender spectrum, culture background lives moment by moment with a set of priorities, a set of unique values that are fingerprint specific. In that hierarchy of values, that set of priorities, <coughs> whatever's highest is more of an intrinsic value, which means that we will spontaneously, with inspiration, take action on it and wanna fulfill it. As we go down the list of values, we require more extrinsic motivation to keep us focused on it. So we use fun punishment rewards. If you do it, we'll reward you. If you don't, we'll punish you kind of thing to get you to stay focused on it. Anytime you're filling your day with the highest priority actions, you will maximize your potential. You'll raise your self-worth. You'll expand your space and time horizons. You'll increase the odds of achieving. Your self-worth will go up. Your belief and your confidence will go up. Your leadership skills will expand. Your blood glucose and oxygen will go into the forebrain and awaken the executive part of you that's self-governed and self-disciplined and masterful. But if you compare yourself to other people, put them on pedestals, inject some of their values in their lives and try to be second at being somebody else, you'll cloud the clarity of what that calling and that highest value is. And you'll constantly need motivation, reminding, and stimulus to keep you moving. So the very highest value, which Aristotle called the telos, the end in mind, is one of the keys 
to maximizing human awareness and potential in life. One of the keys to spontaneously creating the outcome of your innermost dominant thought, because your innermost dominant thought becomes your outermost tangible reality. And your innermost dominant thought is an expression of what you value most. In my case, teaching is it. I, I love teaching. I love sharing ideas. I love learning. So I spontaneously do that. But I don't have a real big desire on cooking or driving. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't driven a car in 32 years, and I haven't cooked since I was 24. Anytime I have things lower on my values that I need any form of motivation to do, I learn to delegate that to other people who love doing it. So I can surround myself with people that are inspired to do the things I'd love to delegate, give job opportunities to them, and free me up to do what I'm greatest at so I can find that one thing that I can excel at and be inspired to fulfill and bring and exemplify to people. So that's the first step in the formula of manifestation. Truly, I, I, I just so get into that with you, and I love that. So let's consider how our family or anyone within your teaching range can apply that to themselves, given some dynamics. Because sometimes, and what I'm getting at is, I think sometimes dynamics really are excuses. Yes. Uh, let, let's get into it. Okay, I can't afford to shift to what I want to do right now. Or um, I don't know how to, you know, all of those things that cause people to stop. Um, over COVID, we saw, and you know, with my line of work, which is work, um, we saw lots of people uh, say they were changing and pivoting in their career or in their personal life uh, thoughts. And what I noticed is that a lot of people were making steps to leave something, but not necessarily steps to go to something. We have a daughter who is in her early 30s who was a highly gifted learner. Thankfully, she was right and left brain gifted. So she had choices and she had some balance in that. Still, she was university ready at 13 years of age, which creates its own set of challenges. When we made a decision not to get the high school diploma and go for the college <clears throat> degree, we, we, we saw it as moving her towards something, but without the clear communication with her, even though we talked about the process with her, the purpose was not as clear. And she came in one evening and asked me, why are you sending me away? It completely shifted how we accommodated for and supported her life goals, which thankfully worked well to us, what about people who see step one and set up those narratives around it? In our instance, she thought we were just ripping her out of school, but she did not see the higher goal of putting her in a better place for where she could likely best function and have some enjoyment or positivity in her experience. Am I clear on this question for you? Yeah, I think so. Um Whatever we perceive- Get rid of the excuses. How do we get rid of the excuses? How do we know what are excuses? Whatever we perceive in the way, instead of on the way, we resist. And so a really magnificent question that every human being can benefit by, every human being, how is whatever I'm experiencing helping me fulfill what I believe is my mission? 
How is whatever I'm experiencing helping me fulfill what I value most? How is whatever I'm experiencing assisting me in doing what I feel is my calling, my, my, my real specialty? I have, I have sometimes people that are going to school and they have a clear idea in their minds what they want to do, but they don't see how the classes are going to be needed for that. And a few of the classes they love because they can see how it's going to help them fulfill what they value. They see it on the way. But other classes, they go, this is in the way. So what I ask them a simple question. So how is that class you're taking that you see in the way, how is it helping you fulfill your objective, your long-term goal? And they'll say, it isn't. And so they're going to have resistance. And the way the brain is set up, Anything that you don't see helping you fulfill your highest value, your brain, the pulvinar nuclei and the thalamus filters it out. It doesn't want it because it's superfluous. We would be overwhelmed by infinity of all the information that comes to us if we didn't have a selective attention. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that pulvinar nuclei is a gating selective attention system. And if we don't see how that particular information or experience or set of skills or responsibilities are going to help us achieve what we really want. We're going to resist it, delete it, and come up with excuses why we don't do it. We'll procrastinate, we'll hesitate, we'll frustrate doing it. But if we ask how specifically this information, this class is going to help you do what you want to do, it changed the game. I had a 16-year-old boy at St. Stithian School in South Africa, Johannesburg. <clears throat> the headmaster of the school asked me to, ch to chat with him because he was about to drop out of school. He wanted to go climb Mount Everest. He was a mountain climber and he was committed to going and climbing Mount Everest. That's all he cared about. He saw school as a distraction and in the way because he was going to be a famous mountain climber. So he asked me to chat with him. <clears throat> and so I said, uh, I hear you're going to go climb Mount Everest. I've been to base camp, but I've never been all the way to the top. We started chatting and gaining rapport with him. <clears throat> and I said, so what is your strategy to get to the top? And he said, and I had already had a list of the classes he was supposedly going to be taking in school. And I said, uh, do you have a team of Sherpas that assist you in carrying materials? And do you speak Nepalese or do you speak Tibetan languages? Are these languages in there? No, I don't. I only speak English. So how do you intend to communicate with your team if you don't have language to communicate with it? Because one of his classes was language. I said, so if you don't have communication, the rapport and the dialogue will be stressful, which will add to your using up oxygen and make it interfere with you getting to the top. I would advise and think about maybe making sure that you have some language communication with that language that you're going to have with those assistants. And I said, do you have a language instructor in your school? Yes. Have you considered having him help you achieve the peaking of Mount Everest to make it to the top? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, he can help you with those languages. He could assist you in studying that language to prepare you to make sure you have your team. And are you, are you taking any sociology classes? He said, yes, I am. I said, have you used your teacher and the knowledge of that to study the culture and the language so you don't do something offensive in your dialogue with somebody, which could make your team abandon you as you're trying to make your ascent? Mm -hmm. And I just kept making links. And then I took him to... Are, are you prepared with your oxygen levels, your partial oxygen levels and your 
your CO2 levels in your brain? Have you studied the chemistry to know exactly what your oxygen levels are and how much erythropoietin you're going to have? And I started making links between chemistry and the ascent. <clears throat> so I took all his classes, the math, the chemistry, the sociology, the language, all of his classes that he was taking, I made links on how it would help him get to his goal. So he did not see those classes in the way. He saw those classes and teachers on the way. <clears throat> when I spent an hour and 30 minutes with him, probably, at the end, he said, it's, I think it's wiser for me to postpone my, my date of ascent and finish these classes and get these people working for me. And it'd be great to have them working on my team instead of me doing what they tell me. I said, yeah, why not be the leader instead of the follower in the class and use your teachers and your school to get you to the top and represent the school possibly. Then they'll rally around you and assist you in getting there. And you probably could raise funds to help you go there because it's going to cost income. <laughs> the flights, the transport, and the, all the equipment. You got to have a lot of equipment to base camp. And I started to make him realize that he was omitting a lot of information that was really needed to make the climb. And he was a little bit idealistic. And anytime you have a fantasy and you're not prepared for it, you end up having sometimes a nightmare. So I'm a firm believer in having true objectives and to link all of the classes, all the knowledge that could be of help to that, to whatever you value most. So your brain absorbs it, lets it in and sticks. Because anytime information is stored and associated um, with our highest values, we absorb it, we apply it, we retain it. Love, love, love this. You've given us such a beautiful understanding and toolkit for approaching not doing the procrastination, not doing the in the way versus on the way mindset that ungames us. Excuse me? Can I share another funny example? Oh, please. Yes. Yeah. I, I, for fun. I, I sometimes I'm a trickster. You know, I play with people. <clears throat> I was teaching my, my signature program, the Breakthrough Experience in Sydney, Australia. And we had about 270 people attending. And there was a lovely lady that snuck in early and a man that snuck in early. And uh, I'm like, I'm saying I'm a trickster. Sometimes I play with people. And this woman comes in. She says, oh, Dr. Martini, I've been waiting for two years to come to your program. I'm so glad you're here. And she was saying it. And I says, I came here because I want to find my soulmate. <laughs> and so, so I, I there was a guy. I'm already there, laughing. <laughs> there, there's a guy who is eating a breakfast Mac or something. <laughs> licking his fingers and really gross, right? And he's sitting there dressed kind of like, not, not, not the most, uh, not like a billionaire, but just a guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so- uh, for fun, I teased her. I said, what about this guy? And and she looked over her shoulder like this and went, oh, no, no, Dr. DiMartini. That's definitely not, no, that's definitely not my what I'm looking for. And I said, are you certain? She goes, well, yeah, that's not it. Do you know who that guy is? She goes, no. You don't recognize him? No, should I recognize him? I'm just surprised you don't. He's one of the wealthiest men in the world. He said, uh, He's a very wealthy billionaire that has planes and yachts and, and jets and, and condos and penthouses and this. And he's, he hangs out with the A-list. He's with presidents and prime ministers and celebrities and this. And he's a philanthropist. And 
And I just started building up all these fantasy ideas about what this guy was. Now he's just eating a breakfast mac. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 um, as I'm doing this, and I said, yeah, I think he was with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, and they and she, one of her biggest regrets is that she couldn't appreciate how much dedication he was to serving human beings. You know, I just made this whole thing up. So a few seconds later, she says, "Oh, Dr. DiMartini, aren't you at least going to introduce me to him?" Now. What that means is that if we can't see how whatever it is that we say we want to do is going to help us do what's truly most important to us, what our life demonstrates is really highest on our values, we will automatically procrastinate, hesitate, frustrate, and resist, and we'll see things in the way. But the moment we make links, and all I did is for fun, and I told her that I was joking with her, and she was she wanted to pop me, when, but she said... <laughs> Because she said, I can't believe I was so gullible. And I, and I said, I, all I did is I took what I knew most females would probably fantasize about. And I made up a, a narrative about that. And I watched your dopamine, your oxytocin, your vasopressin, your encephalons go up, your osteocalcin, your adrenaline, everything else, and cortisol go down. And then your impulses, your amygdala stimulated you to want to go and seek. Where beforehand, it was an avoidance. And it's just the ratio of perceptions, the ratio of perceptions that determine neurochemistry and determine behavior and what you perceive, decide, and act in your life. And if you ask quality questions, you can change the ratios of behavior, ratios of perceptions, and change your behavior from something resistant to something empowered. You so beautifully segue to what I was about to ask you with that. I mean, you're highly into it. I don't know. Maybe there's a chemistry thing going on, despite the devices we're using and, you know, the uh, platforms of, of, of uh, communication. But here, what I was about to ask you is, you know, two things can be true, right? Sometimes we're simply setting up roadblocks and you address that. Um Sometimes maybe we don't know if we are focusing on the right things. And I put right in uh, semi-quote. So how does one, or how do you for that matter, determine when we are focusing differently, even though we're working passionately? And there was a, a, a minister in Los Angeles who operated out of the Crenshaw Christian Center platform and he called it the faith dome largest employer of african-americans in los angeles at the peak of his career uh his service his ministry his name was uh fred price dr fred price and one of the things he uh he he said uh he taught aligned with something another gentleman who um i put almost as high as i do you and um uh, uh zig ziegler Zig said, you know, you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. We can work passionately, doctor, on things. How do we tip in? How do you teach us? What can you teach us about how to tip in to make sure that we are still in the right lane? Because life is iterative and there are so many choices. And then there are so many external components that become intimately engaged in how we decision as an example the war you know the many wars that are going on the major two ones are happening in ukraine and with israel and hamas right now but we know that conflicts occur at all scales and in all places and they impact how we decision make 
are there are there any tools or 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 uh, ticklers you can give us in this moment that I know you already teach to know that we're on the right path or do we need to pivot or shift or do we need to reprioritize? You know, two things can be true. We love the children and we need the income. How do we timeline it so that we're best? Well, whenever you have a choice between two things, you want to be able to give yourself the options of this, that, both, or neither. Mm -hmm. People don't give themselves both and find a common thread to them to focus on where it allows both of them so they're not torn between themselves on the decisions. But I'm going to use a, a bit of a, I guess you could say an analogy here. Imagine you're about to have a relationship with somebody mm-hmm. and you have a bit of a fantasy. You expect them to be nice, never mean, kind, never cruel, generous, never stingy, positive, never negative, considered, never inconsiderate, peaceful, never wrathful. Uh, you know, you expect a one-sided relationship. If you do, you have a fantasy. You don't have a real objective. You have a fantasy. Because if you communicate and support their values, they'll probably be nice. But if you challenge their values, they're probably going to be mean. I'm nice as a pussycat. I'm mean as a tiger if you support Mm -hmm. and challenge me. So if you have a true objective, you're going to embrace both sides. How are you going to love somebody if you're trying to get rid of half of them? Not going to be able to. you got to be able to love both sides. Now, when you have a realistic expectation to have a relationship with both sides, sometimes it'll be nice, sometimes it'll be mean, sometimes kind, sometimes cruel, you can now adapt and be resilient and embrace that relationship because your expectations will be met. But if you have a fantasy that they're going to be nice, never mean, always kind, never cruel, live in your values, not their own, you're setting yourself up for a fantasy. And when you do, life becomes apparently in comparison by the law of contrast a nightmare depression is often a comparison of your current reality to a fantasy you keep being addicted to so if you have a goal that's one-sided your intuition is going to whisper to you the other side to try to get you back into balance to set a real objective the executive center in the forebrain the medial prefrontal cortex actually sends glutamate and and gaba uh transmitter neurons down to the amygdala to keep it balanced to make sure you set a real objective it's trying to be a homeostat to bring you into balance so people have goals many times they think are real objectives but they're fantasies and they set up an unrealistic expectation and they make a decision based on blindness based on a subjective bias that there's all positives no negatives or all negatives no positives so they seek it impulsively and they don't listen to their intuition to balance it, or they avoid it, and they don't listen to their intuition to be able to balance it. So the individual that's in survival tends to subjectively bias their interpretation of their reality and tend to become polarized and try to live in survival, avoiding pain and seeking pleasure and searching for that which is not obtainable and trying to avoid that what is not avoidable. Instead of embracing life in its fullness, uh, the yin and yang, the balance of life, Because if you're in a marriage, you're going to have things you like and dislike. (laughs) If you're in a job, you're going to have things you like and dislike. If you're after a goal, you're going to have ease and difficulty, pleasures and pains in the pursuit of something deeply meaningful and purposeful. So many people are addicted to the fantasy instead of committed to a real objective in life. And that's they set themselves up for challenges and obstacles that they call distress 
which are actually just the other side of the pole for the magnet that they're searching for one side of. Once they embrace both sides of life, life is quite magnificent and they have an objective and they can meet it. If I have a desire to be with somebody and I have an expectation for them to have both sides, they'll meet my expectation and I won't have anger and aggression. I won't want to blame them and feel betrayed. I won't want to criticize them and challenge them. I won't want to feel despaired and depressed. I won't want to exit and escape. I won't have futility and frustration. I won't have hatred and hurt. I won't have this, you know, irritability and irrationality. I won't be jaded and feel like a jerk and act like a jerk because now my expectations are grounded in the truth about how human behavior really is instead of the fantasies I made up in my mind. And that liberates people from a lot of frustrations in their life. And that may be clearer to see in some other people than ourselves. Um, so kind of a convoluted question that I just trust you will be able to uh, unpack and deliver us a good answer to. And it's this, over the time, we're taught that the word should, should leave our language, okay? Um, over the course of life, do you believe that a person can define their purpose and you just lit a light under something that we should go back to some point in this conversation as well. When you were talking, as I heard it to be, uh, purpose is not always goal, even though goal may support purpose, know the difference. Because I think, especially when we start to talk about working in teams, goals are the purpose as most people interpret it. Um, but do you think the whole question is, over the course of life, do you think that we should define our purpose? That our purpose is hardwired into us from birth? Or as you gave us objectives earlier to consider, might it be a combination or might it be neither? Let's talk about that. And the reason I ask is, again, as I mentioned to you a few earlier in this conversation, a few minutes ago, we had a lot of people who came to us in our capacity of employment agents to help them define their purpose when really we were better suited to help them achieve goals if they could have known their purpose better. Yeah. Uh, so before I get too raggedy on it, can you lean in on that a little bit to help this family distinguish between the two and then whether or not they are hardwired or they can in fact have agency to define their purpose? Does it change? Yes. As you evolve and you experience things that support and challenge you, you're tweaking the hierarchy of your values throughout your life. When I was a young boy, three to about 13, baseball was everything to me. Mm -hmm. When I turned 13, surfing became everything to me. When I turned to um, 18, teaching and education became very valuable to me. <clears throat> things could change when I get 100. I mean, I might have, you know, I was hoping to be an international sex symbol, but that I have no evidence of that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <clears throat> so we can evolve it. Our You're doing well. You're doing well, doctor. You're doing our, well. Our hierarchy of values is dictating our destiny yeah. because it's dictating how we perceive, decide, and act. As the hierarchy of values are evolving, which they do, they ever so often tweak and change or cataclysmic event can change. 
You could have a car crash and all of a sudden your values can shift big time, cataclysmically. <clears throat> As they change, so does the primary direction, the primary intention. The highest value Aristotle called the telos, which he called the end in mind. There was a study of that called teleology, the study of meaning and purpose. So our highest value is our ontological identity, our teleological purpose, and our epistemological area of expertise and pursuit. So if we identify what's really most valuable, which is why I have on my website a value determination process free for people to help them, if they identify that, that's where we are spontaneously inspired to act. That's where we excel. And that's where we will endure pain and pleasure and set true objectives in a balanced manner to achieve. But as we go down the list of values to things that are less important, less valuable, less fulfilling, we bring our blood glucose and oxygen into our amygdala and we tend to go into avoiding pain, seeking pleasure. And we tend to set fantasies and try to avoid difficulties which stops us from reaching our full potential because in order to achieve something great, you have to look for challenges that inspire you to solve instead of avoid challenges, you know, and try to live in, 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 in juvenile veil. Now, if all of a sudden we identify what's really most priority to us and we set sail as captain on our ship in the pursuit of that, a purpose is the most efficient and effective pathway to fulfill the greatest amount of voids in our life with the greatest amount of value. And the voids in our life are due to the judgments we've made. Anytime we see someone, we put them on a pedestal and we're too humble to admit what we see in them inside us, we will feel we've got a disowned part and feel empty because we judge. Anytime we look down on somebody and we're too proud to admit what we see in them inside us, we have a disowned part and we feel empty. Anytime we level the playing field and realize with reflective awareness that what we see in them is us, as it says in Romans 2.1, what you judge in others, you do too, the same thing. Once you have reflective awareness and you love somebody instead of judge somebody, now you have a balanced orientation and you actually have love and you have fulfillment, not emptiness. If you do that and you pursue what you love with the people you love, you have an amazing gratitude attitude of life. But if you judge and you keep disowning parts, you'll keep feeling empty and unfulfilled. And you'll frustrate yourself because you're living by lower values and you're not disciplined there. So you keep needing motivation and you tend to have false attribution bias. You'll blame things on the outside and look for something on the outside to rescue you. Instead of look at it's all inside, it's all a projection of your own interpretation of reality that you're facing. Once you own what you're perceiving and have reflective awareness, life is amazing. It's inspiring. And you're guided from within. That's why I said on the movie, The Secret, when the voice and the vision on the inside is louder than all of those on the outside, you begin to master your life. So your purpose is through time and space. Your goals are in time and space. They're intermediate steps along the journey of a life fulfillment of purpose and the summation of the purposes they evolve make up the life journey the life journey is summated out of all the purpose directions the destinies and all those are based on the changing values that you're experiencing as you go through life and people that live by their highest values make micro changes and adapt to a changing environment resiliently people that try to live by lower values have to hit bottom and have cataclysmic events to get them to change so wisdom is living by priority and filling your day with the highest priority actions that you can 
and delegating lower priority actions. Dedicate to highest values, delegate to lower values, and you liberate yourself from the bondage and burden of the mediocre life, and you give yourself permission to shine, not shrink, and to be inspiring and exemplify what's potentially possible as a human being. Who would think that at this point in my life, you've given me such a gift that I feel I feel as though I'm a, the bud of a calla lily about to open. And this is coming from a person who really thought, and perchance is still true, I have a lot to teach, so much more to learn, and I thank you for it. You shared with us your, your quick journey from ball to surfing to teaching as your purpose or your passion. How did you personally discover your purpose for teaching? In 1972, let's see if I can find a little picture here. In 1972, I had a, pardon me one second. My computer just showed it, showed us away there. Uh-huh. Let me see if I can get a picture that I think will say it all. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Yeah, they do. There we go. So in 1972, I was riding a big wave in Laniakea, which is on the North Shore of Oahu. Mm -hmm. I was a long-haired hippie surfer guy <laughs> living in a tent. <laughs> and uh, well, my, my goal was to ride big waves and surf. But that day, I my diaphragm stopped breathing. Ooh. While I was riding a big wave. And I thought, okay, this is where it's going to end. But luckily, I literally went over the falls on this thing. It was really thrown right into the coral, into the rocks. And I got messed up pretty good. Mm. I nearly died. And I was unconscious for three and a half days. I was luckily found in my tent. Somebody knew where I was. And they brought me there because I was unconscious. And... In the process of recovering from that, somebody said, you need to take a yoga class to have mind over body. So for some reason, I decided to go to a yoga class, which I've never, ever went to. That was not something that I would do. And I went to this yoga class and this lovely lady introduced Paul C. Bragg. Bragg's amino acid. You might be heard of those. Mm -hmm. And he spoke. And that night, he said, we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a soul. And the body must be directed by the mind, and the mind must be guided by the soul to maximize your human experience. And that what you think about, what you visualize, what you affirm, what you feel, what you act upon, and what you write out clearly and concisely can change the, the path of your life. And he says, so you want to set a goal for yourself, your family, your community, your city, your state, your nation, your world, and beyond for 100 to 120 years. Because by the time where you are, people will live 100 to 120 years. Well, nobody spoke to me like this. I was told I would never read, write, you know. I, the only thing I ever looked at was maybe girly pictures or surf magazines. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this night, he spoke to me in such a way that I really started to believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and learn how to speak properly and learn how to read and someday become intelligent. The first night in my life 
that I thought I could become intelligent. Do you think it was the power of his spoken word aligned with your readiness to hear? Yes, 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 absolutely. So he took us through a guided imagery meditation that he, an alpha meditation. Mm -hmm. And during that meditation, I wasn't expecting this, but I, I literally saw vision. It was one of those visionary moments. And I was brought to tears. And I must have been in that vision. I'm going to guess 20 minutes. I don't know. Wow. Wow. And I was there. And what I saw, I was speaking in Melbourne, Australia about 15 years ago. And I was sharing the story of this. And after I finished that, I was signing books and hugging people. And a guy came up to me and said, I'm a painter. Can I paint your vision? I said, that would be inspiring. He says, it would be my gift. So he painted the vision I saw. Oh, my. I saw oh myself my. on a balcony speaking to a million people. Oh, my. With, with a building from every major city around the world. And the name of the painting is A Man on a Mission with a Vision and a Message. Wow. wow. And I saw that that night. And I didn't see me standing there in that age. I just looked out. He painted that in to put my image at the time in. Mm. But. That's what I saw. And I saw that I was destined to bring a, a message and to overcome my learning problems and be a teacher. And I mm. knew that I knew that I knew that I was going to step foot on every country on the face of the earth. Today, mm. I've got to meet on 194 countries so far. That's the power of a vision. Everybody is not going to have that experience. Do you believe everyone can have that experience? Yes. And that's been, why you're teaching. That's it. I've been teaching a program called the Breakthrough Experience, and I do what I can every week when I teach that to help people grasp that. When you live by your highest value and you prioritize your life, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain, into the medial prefrontal cortex. That area of the brain has nerve fibers. It goes into what they call V5, V6 visual associative areas on the medial portion of the parietal and temporal and occipital lobe. And right at that, that point, we have the most amount of visual experience available to us, and we're able to capture a vision. So when we are able to live by priority and do the one thing, as Gary Keller says, find that one thing that is so inspiring to us that we would love to dedicate our energies to, we spontaneously love doing it. The moment we do, that area of the brain gives us the vision that we see it. And I've watched this happen over and over. There's a gamma synchronicity in the brain where there's a complete synchronicity of whole portions of the brain and, and there's an aha eureka moment and tears come out of the eyes and clarity of vision appear. And those with a vision flourish, those without a vision perish. But when you're doing lower priority things and you're judging and putting people on pedestals and injecting their values and clouding the clarity of your mission or putting people in pits and trying to project all the shoulds and ought tos and got tos and have tos and trying to get them to live in your values, which is futile, you distract yourself, disempower yourself and feel empty and stop you and don't believe in worthiness that you deserve a vision. And so that part of the brain, the amygdala, does not have connections to the V5, V6. You lose your vision. Therefore, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, doctor. I, there's just so much you're teaching that I believe needs to be 
placed into a context where we can share with or without your immediate presence there to people before they are at university. And one of the things that you're lighting right now is, and maybe I'm just late to the moment, is, you know, so many people teach, believe, even preach on the power of dreaming, right? And so when we talk about a dream and a vision, let's take the ah from it and move it to the verb tense of dream and vision. Some people say envision. I'm, I think vision is a more powerful way to use it as a verb. And so you're making a distinction, I think, that many people don't get because dream is kind of a passive thing and it may happen to you or for you, not necessarily by you or from you. Vision, as you're speaking it, implies that some work has been done and some faith is there. To, and when I speak of faith, I mean some confidence in yourself and some belief that it can matter to tomorrow. Is any of that making sense right now? Is yeah, it, whenever I and when I teach the breakthrough experience, there's an exercise in there called the love list, and I like tell people that. to write some write something that they know. Start with what they know, and let what they know grow. You know, whatever we know that's finite and, and infinitesimal compared to what we don't know, which is infinite. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to grow and expand, you want to start with what you know. So when I first wrote out my vision statement and dream statement, which I have, which I've been updating 81 times in 51 years, I started out, I said, I knew that I knew that I wanted to step foot on every country on the earth. I knew I wanted to travel the world. I wrote that down. I knew that I wanted to overcome my learning problems and someday become intelligent. I wrote that down. I knew that I wanted to learn about these things he just mentioned called universal laws. I wanted to have a body of knowledge that I could rely on that so when I disseminated, it would be something meaningful and it would stand the test of time. I knew that I wanted to be involved in the study of health because I had a health problem. So I wanted to know physiology. I wanted to know psychology. I wanted to know sociology. I wanted to know philosophy. I wanted, I, I wanted to, I wanted to expand those areas in my mind. So I only wrote what I knew. And then I read that. And every so often I would get inspired to write another word in there, a little phrase in there. And as what I knew grew, it got clearer and clearer and more concise and more certain about how and what I was going to do to make it happen. I then asked myself, what are the highest priority actions I can do today that will allow me to move one step closer to that, that dream, that vision? And then I would write those down and I would keep records of those. And I would look at what was the highest priorities of the highest priorities over time to determine the priority of the priority to priorities to get the 20% that gives you 80% results and just keep breaking it down. And for me, it was teach, research, write, and travel the world. So everything else I delegated to other people. And the only way to do that is to make sure that what you're providing meets people's needs. You have to care enough about yourself to do what you love. You have to care enough about people to fulfill what they need. And if you care enough about humanity, there's never a lack of opportunity to make a fortune and to live a very prosperous life. But you have to care about it. So people, when they're maybe not as empowered financially, it may be because they're focusing on anything but what it takes to be of service to people. Because when you do that, there's no, there's an unlimited, there's 8 billion people out there that need, need mm -hmm. something. 
If you mm -hmm. find something that you would love to provide that meets their needs and have a sustainable fair exchange transaction with equity and equanimity, then there's no stopping you from being prosperous in your life and have fulfillment life because the most fulfilling thing you'll ever have in your life is when you make a difference serving people and have people say thank you. That's the highest value we get. Wow, wow, wow. You have a quote that so deeply resonates with me. I've written it on my mirror. So in my bathroom, not to get too personal, in my home in California, I have all mirror around the whole bathroom. Get past that. I have it that way because I write. You know how people sticky note and stick? Well, back in the day when I designed this bathroom, I wasn't sticky noting. So I just write in lipstick and I color code it. My, you know, my, my wife had lipstick all over the all over the mirrors. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I love her for that. So my sister. Uh, so I write things that are important to me there. Uh, some have been there for years and have gone in and retouched. Uh, and I color code them, you know, pink, brown, and red in my three lip colors. Uh, one that you did is in red and it is the magnificence of who you are far exceeds any fantasy you will ever impose upon yourself. And so I take liberty with this moment to just thank you so, so much for that, doctor. Um, you know, visualizing is something you talk and teach about and it's a practice I also live by and teach to people when I have the humble opportunity to do so. Will you go back to your formula for a moment? Yeah. You quote scripture in saying that those with a vision flourish, those without a vision perish. For those who may be skeptical about the idea that we become what we think about, or as you put it, I think profoundly earlier, um, what we think about can change our path. How do you explain to them the power of visualization and setting concrete goals? We've already addressed, there's a lot going on that no matter how focused we are here, you know that breaking news is right here. You know, how many more kids are dead? How many more this? In Los Angeles, you know, you wake up this morning, you're heading to downtown for a meeting. Oops, the 10 got burned down. And all of these things are happening. How do we get in and we focus and appreciate and realize the power of visualization and its power to help us set concrete goals and to create formulas or processes for moving forward? That's a big well, question, yeah? Yeah. Well, Phelps. I believe had 28 gold medals. I could be wrong on the number, but I believe- Michael Phelps, Michael Phelps, the swimmer. Yeah. Okay. And uh, one, him and his coach, there's a video online if you want to find it, of uh, their dialogue about their visualization. And so I think the evidence of some of the greatest Grammy award winners, singers, uh, performers, athletes, business leaders, the ones I know, and I've met thousands of them, visualization is either spontaneous or intentional. And they do, in their mind's eyes, see something that they're following, and they get clear on it. Any detail you leave out of the vision is an obstacle you'll face on your journey. Mm -hmm. So the master is the one who focuses on every finer detail. I will sometimes spend 
hours on one paragraph, writing it exactly the way I want the outcome to be. And then as I read it, I can see it in my mind's eye. Once I see it in my mind's eye, I've got a vision and a message for my inner being. So I'm a firm believer that getting really clear on that because nobody's going to get up in the morning and dedicate their life to your fulfillment. They're all going to get up to fulfill what their values are and their fingerprint specific to them. And they're not dedicated always to you. So if you're expecting something on the outside to miraculously give you something you want from the inside, I would suggest that you turn the, the mirror around and reflect back inside and realize it's up to you to take command. You know, if you, any area of your life, you don't empower other people overpower you. If you don't oh. empower yourself intellectually, you'll be told what to think. If you don't mm -hmm. empower yourself in business, you'll be told what to do. If you don't empower yourself in finance, you'll be told what you're worth. Mm. If you empower yourself in relationship, you'll be doing honey do things around the house. If you don't empower yourself in social uh, soci sociology, you're going to end up being told misinformation and propaganda. If you don't empower yourself physically, you'll be told what drugs to take and organs to remove. Doctor, you're <laughs> taking me to black church. I'm ready to say amen, amen. And that's the rudest thing I can do is cut over your flow. But you've got me shouting amen. But if you don't, and if you don't empower yourself spiritually, you may be subordinating to something that hasn't been thought through by an institution, yeah. not a yeah. spiritual master. <clears throat> so you have to give yourself permission to shine and take command of your life and live by design, not duty. And most people mm -hmm. live by duty. And they, Ernest Becker, in his Pulitzer Prize winning Denial of Death, said that our fear and anxiety is associated with death make us have an immortality pursuit. That immortality pursuit can be individualized or collective. Most people take the collective and they fit in, even though they want to make a difference and stand out. Mm -hmm. The ones who are the unborrowed visionaries, the people that are willing to walk the path that's mm -hmm. novel, the one that's willing to blaze a new trail, those are the ones that make the difference in the world. And that comes from living authentically according to the hierarchy of your values, which are unique, and having the courage to when people are ridiculing you or violently opposing you, to know that to be great is to be misunderstood and to pursue your pursuit with a heart. And that's what courage comes from. Core means heart. Mm -hmm. Courage. I was 18 years old and I was carpooling with a guy to, to school, to college, junior college. And uh, just started back to school, just learning how to read. I failed at first, but I had to I had to keep learning. I started reading a dictionary and memorizing a dictionary every day. We were in the we were talking to the guy. He was an engineer. He wanted to make magnetic trains, which he went on to create magnetic trains we see today. Mm. I wanted to travel the world and teach. One day we had a carpooler in and he was in the back seat and he was a rich kid, you know, kind of a snooty little rich kid. And uh he was in the back seat and he said, yeah, 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 Demartini, sure. You want to go travel the world and teach? Yeah, yeah. You're going to work on the cotton gin or you're going to work on a farm. Come on, get ready. You don't even know how to read, kid. And he was really cutting me down. And uh, he's the naysayer. And I thought, that's okay. If I'm resistant, it's because I'm not certain. And so I used that as a catalyst to find out how clear and certain I was in my pursuit. And time will tell. If I'm really pursuing and I never give up on my dream, it's yours. If you never give up on your dream, everybody else dies out. You end up at the top. <laughs> so, yeah. So I went about my business. He did not ride with us anymore. One year and a couple months ago, I was doing a little podcast, well, webinar, about 8,000 people were attending. And that guy was on that webinar. 
and he sent a little note in on the blog and said, is that the John Martini from Richmond, Texas? And my assistant sent that to me. Do you know somebody from, did you, did you live in Richmond, Texas? I said, I did find out who it is. We asked the name. He said the name. I went, Oh my God, that's the guy in the back seat. Uh-huh. And I sent this thing out. Cause you know, you want to see some, if you haven't seen him for 50 years, you want to give him a hug and see him. You know, it doesn't matter what they said. You don't care now. So I said, Yes, that's me. How are you doing? What's going on? Where are you? Da, da, da. And all he said back was, you friggin' did it, man. That's the guy in the backseat. That's the guy. So if you're being ridiculed, if you're being opposed, remember, if you're not being crucified, you're probably not on purpose. You're probably <laughs> making a difference. Oh, my goodness. The greatest to be misunderstood. And you're in mediocrity always always challenges greatness. So it's just considered as a stepping stone that is essential and a confirmation that you're on track with your mission. This is beautiful. You 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 bring me to recall, and I don't quote, but I do share what the impact to me was of a of of a part of Diana Ross's book, Call Me Miss Ross. And I read it for personal reasons and uh, relationships. And one of the things she talked about in that book was how she would visualize herself in business meetings in a boardroom. She had no issues, even though she was diligent and believed in the power of practice, practice, practice about going on a stage and singing in front of thousands of people. But being in a boardroom with just a few men was something she needed to visualize for. And she flipped the script instead of because up until then I used to visualize, but I always visualized meetings. I would have doctor seeing the faces of people who. I had been able to research who would be in the room. I knew who would be in the room, finding out as much about them as I could and how I would answer to them. She flipped the script for me when I read her book because she said she visualized herself standing in front of them and the questions she would ask. And then it empowered her to listen better when she was in the room, but more importantly, to own her own outcomes. And at the first reading of it, I thought, wow, is that a little sassy arrogant? And then it haunted me that night. And I went back to read that section the next day and I got it. And I I, I think so many of us aren't even giving ourselves permission to assume a role of authorship to our lives. You yes. talked about that a little bit. I, you, you're bringing up two things I'm going to say. Um, Anytime you have the fear of speaking, you don't have the fear of speaking. You speak to people all the time. You have the fear of speaking about something that you think somebody in the audience knows more about than you. Yeah, because she said she only had a high school education and she was in front of people who were far more powerful intellectually when in fact they were not. So the second you assume... The second you assume they have something you don't. And see, at the level of the soul, nothing's missing in you. At the level of the senses, things appear to be missing in you. And that's because you're too proud or too humble to admit what you see in others inside you. And if you look up to people and minimize yourself, that's not who you are. Mm-hmm. You're you're everything you see in them in your own form, according to your own values. Or you mm-hmm. couldn't recognize the greatness in them, the power in them. So if you go in there and ask, so where do I have what I admire in them and find it? And once you see that it's equal, 
you'll stand strong in your message. I had a very interesting thing happen. It's quite funny. I'm 27 years old. I just put my shingle up to start my healthcare business. And I got a call from a meeting planner. And she said, Dr. Martini, we've got sort of an urgent situation. Somebody was not able to make the conference and we need you to speak. Can you do a speech on how to be successful? And I said, absolutely. Who am I speaking to? Now I'm 27 years old. I just opened my business two weeks and they want me to speak on how to be a success. But it's to 75, 70 to 75 year old former CEOs of the largest oil companies in America. These are the, these are the major CEOs of Shell Company, you know, at that time, Humble Oil, Exxon Mobil, yes. you know, at Texaco, Arco, yes. Shell. So icons. Yeah. These are the guys that ran those companies. So I go over, this is a couple of days notice and everything I was thinking, what I want to say, I get there 20 minutes beforehand. I walk behind the stage. I look out there and there's round tables with these guys with their arms crossed. <laughs> you know, executives. And I'm I'm a, quite a bit intimidated. I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to teach them? I'm two weeks into business and they are retired running the biggest corporations in America. I'm going to teach them about success. This seems a little ironic. So I thought at the last minute, what I was going to say, I tossed. And I got this incredible idea that popped in my head. And that was that the biggest fear people have is speaking. So I'm going to flip my fear of speaking onto them. So I get up on stage. They, she introduces me and I get up on stage and I said, everybody, please bring out a piece of paper and I want you to write something to think about. And they did it. I said, as long as you're green, you're growing. As soon as you ripen, you're rot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I said three times, as long as you're green, you're growing. As soon as you ripen, rot to make sure they got it down. And it made them think. And I said, so if you're green and you're growing, that means you have something deeply meaningful, something purposeful, something that's expanding you, something that's challenging you that you're committed to, regardless of if you're retired or not, because there's nothing wrong with retirement as long as it doesn't get away with your, in the way of your life and your mission. And I said, and if you aren't doing that and you're not challenging and stretching yourself, you're rotting, you're decaying. And I came down off the stage, I took the microphone and I handed it to the first guy. <clears throat> and I said, so what's your big challenge? What are you anxious about that you want to accomplish that's deeply meaningful? Now, if he doesn't have that, he's going to look pretty silly in front of those people. And if he does have, he's got to admit what he's challenged by. And if he hasn't thought it through, he's got to come up with something so he doesn't look like he hasn't been doing it. <laughs> and so I've got him, you know, I've got him if you want to know what I'm saying. I got him. Mm -hmm. And so he's like going, uh, and, and everybody's kind of going, yeah, Charlie, what are you doing? What are you working on? And they're all kind of ganging up on him and because these guys knew each other. About him. So he had to speak up. And then everybody in the room is now anxious because they're going to have to public speak in front of their peers. <laughs> and so I go person to person all through that room in the hour and a half that I was to speak. I never did a speech. I made them all have to do the speech. And at the end, I got a standing ovation. Yes, yes, yes. And I never yes. did a speech. 
Yes. All I did was put them into their biggest fear and help them conquer their fear and get clear about what they want to dedicate their life to at 75 years old. That's beautiful. And that's what you continue to do in your work. And that's why I'm kind of gushing and fangirling over here on you, or fangying, I should say. Out of all the places you've traveled, Doctor, has there been one that's had a particularly profound impact on your work? Well, I was asked to speak in Iran. And I've, I've spoken there three times now. And um, I was speaking to 200 government officials, government ministers, and the president, and a bunch of people that were involved in CEOs of major companies. There were 600 in the room. And it was like United Nations. Everybody had their own microphone. You know, it was really a fancy kind of thing. I had three high-profile bodyguards, and we had security around the place. It was really an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. But right before I flew there from Tokyo to Iran, I was told that we've got a problem. And I and the problem was that one of my books, uh, The Heart of Love on Relationships, had something in it that did not match Sharia law. And so there was a fraction of radicals that wanted to debate me on national television about my statements about uh, the in the, the book. Mm -hmm. And and all it was is uh, my wife happened to be in Portofino on our ship. And I happened to be in Australia and she wrote me and texted me. She says, one of the most handsome men I've ever seen in my life just told me I was the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And I said, well, you are the most beautiful woman I've seen. So he's got good taste. <laughs> she said, well, he asked me out and that really flustered me. And I said, well, get his details and, and take advantage of it. And she says, well, why would I do that? And I said, because if you don't, you'll be having a fantasy in your mind and I'll be compared to a fantasy and I can't win. If you do, you rule him out or you'll find something better and then you win. <laughs> we, were, we were teasing each other, right? Well, I was joking and having some fun with my wife because she was a beautiful woman. So mm -hmm. that doesn't go over well with Sharia law. So they wanted to debate me. So they were surrounding the entrance to this place. And there was a lot of, you know, like it was like Argo, the movie Argo, when you're going through mm -hmm. the crowd, right? So when I spoke, I figured I better open the hearts of people right from the beginning. So I come up on stage and I look out at everybody and I look at everybody literally in the face, one by one, like I'm talking to each one of them, going through quietly. And then I said, it is such an honor to be here because the very first student that I ever had that wanted me to teach him something when I was 18 years old was from Persia, from Tehran. Mm -hmm. And he said, someday, I asked him where he's from. He said, I'm from Persia. I said, someday you'll have to come to my country and come and bring your ideas to this country. And that was 1973. And I said, so I've waited from 1973 to be here today. I finally made it here. And I got tears in my eyes. And the whole room got teary-eyed. And that's how I opened it up. Because if you humble yourself, people will lift you up. If you aggrandize yourself, people will pull you down. Because wow. everybody is just trying to find equanimity innately without them even knowing it. And we're, we're having a lesson that right now in the Middle East, <laughs> in Ukraine. Yes, we are. So all I know is that when I did that, I realized that what politicians and economics and social political and military systems are promoting are not necessarily what the average person out there. The average individual from around the world in every country I've been in just loves, wants to raise a family, wants to do something amazing, wants to contribute to their life. 
they don't really have an issue with these people in different cultures and things like that. The average person, they don't, that's not what their focus is. That's why we collectively, we collectively say, well, these people are that way, or these people, these are illusions. We have individuals, maybe a fraction of those individuals that are outspoken, that polarize things instead of synthesize things and find differences instead of similarities and close the heart with judgment instead of open the heart with love. And we you are right, doctor. And and years ago, years ago, my husband, and I think you may know, my husband was, you know, white, 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 European, white born uh, male. Um, we went and we had many discussions about many wonderful things. One of the most beautiful human beings on earth. And I truly had the blessing of being married to my hero until he passed of uh, Alzheimer's during COVID. Um, but we had gone to Odessa. Uh, after traveling to Russia for the filming of Peter the Great. And we were in an opera house. And at a really good moment as we were leaving, he asked me before we walk out, he said, tell me something you saw that everyone had in common. And I gave him different answers. And I always wanted to elevate myself to his thinking, which he told me was silly because, you know, he said, I'm in the basement, you're there. And we had that thing going on, similar to you and your wife. Um, and, but the thing he said was, you'd noticed, for me, he said, I noticed every woman in this room, because it was mostly women who were there. Uh, he was an odd fellow out, if you will, pulled out their handkerchiefs and they cried at the same moments and they laughed at the same moments, which leads me to believe that even though they are from very many different countries, most not understanding the language the opera is being sung in, understood the message when we got rid of the words and when we were all able to under, he said, they're likely coming from the same circumstances. They love their children. They want their families to do well. They appreciate music. You know, he went on that long list of similarities. He did that doctor because before going into that opera, I said, I'm going to be the only black person in here in the heart of Europe. And I was looking at the big thing based on my life experiences to that moment that set me apart instead of set me in stride with what we were all there for. And it completely changed how I walk into any room to this day. You, you and I are throwing a lot of content for thought right now. We must go back to something you alluded to when you got the tears in your eyes and you're standing in front of this room of people who you've been encouraged you'd have to visit that country later in Iran. And Iran is in the news right now, but you walked into that room and you talked about gratitude, I think was what you were feeling. The power of gratitude is something we could spend the entirety of this conversation on. But if we simply approach it from the angle of helping someone who does not feel gratitude or understand the power of gratitude, what are some actual methods you can give us that can guide or teach us all to practice gratitude better in our lives? Well, the executive center in the, in the forebrain is also called the gratitude center. So when mm -hmm. we're authentic, that is our nature. When we're judging, 
we don't get to be our full full selves. But there's two types of gratitude the way I, I see it. There's a superficial gratitude when things are being done that support your values and you go, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's easy, thank you. And then when people challenge you, can you be grateful? <laughs> now, in, in chaos theory and in the study of thermodynamics, there's a thing called order and chaos or order and disorder. And Claude Shannon said, when there's disorder, there's missing information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when there is order, it's because you see fully. So order means you have mindful. You're fully aware of both sides of life. And when you have disorder, you're mindless. You're seeing something missing. When you're infatuated with somebody, you're conscious of the upsides, unconscious of the downsides. When you're resentful to somebody, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides. When you love somebody, you're conscious of both their sides simultaneously. When you do, you have true, deep gratitude or grace. That gratitude is healing. That one is revealing. That is reflective. And that is the one that actually is confirmation of authenticity. Mm -hmm. When you're acknowledging the hidden order in the apparent chaos of your life, because you learn to ask quality questions that made you conscious of what you started out unconscious of, which is why you judged. Whenever you judge, you only have part of the information. When you love, it's because you finally asked the question intuitively to bring out the side you overlooked and you get to see things. And that gratitude, that deep gratitude, when you see the balance of support and challenge, you know, if somebody over supports you, you can become juvenile dependent. And if somebody overly, you know, challenges you, you can become precociously independent. If they put the two together, you maximize your growth and development. So it's the ability to see both the support, the challenge, the positive negatives, the balance magnet at the same time that gives true deep gratitude and a grace. Because when you infatuate somebody, you're going to want to change you into them. When you resent somebody, you're going to want to change them into you, both of which are futile. Mm -hmm. But when you love somebody, you don't need to change anything. You just embrace them as they are, and they do the same. And the namaste, that divine in me honors the divine in you. In that moment, there's nothing to fix. And human will matches what the theologians call divine will. What is as it is. Om Tat Sat, as the Gita said. In that moment, there's grace. And there's a place in the heart with gratitude for whatever it is that we're reflecting on. So to me, I'm interested in teaching people the questions to make them conscious of what they're unconscious of, to make them fully conscious, which is what our intuition's attempting to do, but we always, we, we tend to overlook it and let our impulses and instincts of our amygdala override our executively intuitive knowledge to be able to see love. Oh my goodness, such a, such, such a drop the mic moment, but I gotta ask you, your book, The Breakthrough Experience, bold, huh? You talk about things that, I mean, it's changed the lives of people just just, just reading that book. And you, you share stories about ordinary people. Um, um, amongst the feedback you've gotten from readers, is there any one passage or story that really stuck with you that helped propel you forward in your journey? Well, not just from that book, but can, can I share an interesting story from South Africa? Please. So I was speaking at the Sheraton Arabella Hotel or the Western Sheraton SPG 
Arbella Hotel there on the waterfront near Cape Town. And there's about maybe six, seven, eight hundred people. I'm not sure exactly how many. And way in the back was a young boy, 14 years old, but I didn't get to see him or know he was there that night, but he was there. And afterwards, I'm signing books and giving hugs and pictures, you know, how you do after a talk. I come back, that was September. I come back in December, three months later, I do the same thing, about the same number of people. But this time at the end of my talk, after all the signatures and hugs and pictures and signing books, this one boy just kept waiting until the very end at the line, just kept going and he came up to me, very final boy. He had a rope in his loopholes of his pants. He had a shirt that was kind of dingy and got holes in it. The pants were rolled up about eight inches longer so he could grow into these pants. Mm. He was 14 years old. And he comes up to me and he says, Dr. Martini, you inspired me. And I said, that's wonderful. What? How so? He said, well, you inspired me at your talk three months ago about personal finance and about how no matter what you've been through or gone through, you can always turn your finances into a new path. I started doing what you said, and I've saved $7.50 since last time. Now, my mother and father, they died of AIDS. I'm 14. I'm the oldest. I have nine brothers and sisters. I am the parent and raising the family. I live in a shack that doesn't have electricity nor water. It has a mud floor. And we put plastic bags over the holes when it rains. And we have to go and get pump water. And we have to go to a little bathroom. But I was making 60 cents a day stacking mud bricks at a brick manufacturing company nearby. And I got 60 cents a day paid. I had to pay 15 cents a day to a woman who would manage and take care of the kids and try to teach the kids and my family things during the day. I had to pay another 30 cents for feeding and clothing the kids. But I started saving 15 cents a day. Every day I worked 15 cents a day, went to 25% of my income, went to saving money so I can put a down payment that I plan on having by next, next year. I want to have $30 saved by next Christmas, have $30 saved. I'm going to put $20 down on a $200 new home. It's going to have a 24% interest rate because that's the interest rate at the time. He said, now I could have given him $200 and just bought it, but I would have robbed him of dignity, accountability, responsibility, and productivity, and the feeling of a fulfillment achievement of doing something meaningful on his own. So I kept connected with that boy. And a year later, I was there at the house that he bought. And his dream was to inspire at least a thousand kids just like him in the township that he lived in, because there's a lot of people living there. It's a very condensed area with an 85% unemployment rate. He said, I also did what you said, Dr. Martin. no matter what you do when you're working, always keep looking for more to do and what you can do to serve the people and keep going to the people who own the company. How else can I be of service? How else can I be of service? What else can I do that can help your company? How else can I do it? Just keep offering more than what people expect and doors of opportunity will keep expanding. So he did that and he had saved over that $30 to put the $20 down on that house. 
and was showing kids how to do that. And it was, and, and he said that I inspired him, but that's not really the whole story because he inspired me. Oh my goodness, yes. Because oh it, he, what he taught me is it doesn't matter where you've come from, doesn't matter what you're going through, doesn't matter what you've been through. What matters is do you have a dream and are you willing to apply the principles and the action steps and the vision that it takes to achieve greatness? He went on to do something with his life and changed. And instead of being a victim of history, he became a master of destiny. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Doctor, it's going to take you a cut and start to answer this, but you've got to talk about it. Regret. How should regret fit or not fit into our lives? When we hear these inspiring stories, when we see the things that are happening in the world, kind of circling back to when we were talking about um, things that we treat as roadblocks instead of pathways. Um, what can you tell us on regret in these last moments? Regret is an incomplete awareness of the order of the universe. It's an assumption that what you've done in your actions, your motor actions, somehow have caused more pain and pleasure, more loss and gain, more negative than positive, more pain and pleasure to someone or yourself. And that's not a complete awareness. Let me give you, I could give you a few examples, but I'll give you one that just recently happened. There was a gentleman who came to my Breakthrough Experience program, where I help people break through these kind of illusions that they have. And he says, I really, really feel like a schmuck, really beating myself up. And I haven't been able to focus and function since my mom passed away. I said, okay, so what specifically are you judging in yourself that you did? What specific action, trait action or inaction do you perceive you demonstrated or delivered or did that you thought was more negative than positive to your mom or to whoever else was involved? And he said, I wasn't there for my mom when she died. I didn't make it. I chose to hesitate instead of activate. She passed away. I said, great. So how did that benefit your mom? She said, well, it didn't. I didn't get to see her. I said, no, I didn't ask that. That's the story you got. That's why you're feeling down. I asked, how did it benefit your mom? He goes, I have no idea. I didn't ask that. How did it benefit your mom? I can't think of it. I didn't ask that. How did it benefit your mom? And all of a sudden he goes, wow. My mom and my sister were not getting along for almost 11 years. They didn't speak to each other. My mom died in my sister's arms. I, If I had been there, my mom would have died incomplete and my sister would have been incomplete. And I not being there was part of a higher order that I just now see because that was essential for my mom and my, my, my sister to make that resolution. And there was no way I could have been there and that would have happened if I would have been there. And all of a sudden he goes, I didn't see that. I said, the quality of your life's based on the quality of the questions you ask. If you don't know how to ask questions to bring balance to your perceptions, the imbalanced ratio of perceptions will create an imbalanced ratio of chemistry in the brain and give you these sensations, which we call happy or sad. But if we balance them, we'll feel gratitude and love. That's a balanced mind. A perfectly equilibrated mind automatically opens the heart. But one mm -hmm. that judges and is imbalanced closes it off. 
you were closing your heart to yourself, infatuating with your mom, minimizing yourself, instead of bringing things in equilibrium and honoring both and seeing it. The only time we think we make a mistake is we compare our actions to somebody else's values that we put on a pedestal that we've injected into our life. A mother, a father, a preacher, a teacher, a convention, a tradition, a moray of somebody you've given authority to that you've subordinated to. The moment you actually look at your actions and your own values, you realize there was no mistakes. There was a hidden order to it. And the second we think other people can make mistakes is when we project onto them our values and expect them to live in our values. But they don't make mistakes in their values. They're making decisions according to their values, but we're not honoring it. We're superior thinking our values are more important to theirs. Therefore, we think they make a mistake. That's why Drucker said in your hiring people, hire somebody who's engaged and inspired to do the job and don't want to have to push them uphill or you'll, you'll label them and judge them. And they're magnificent people, but you're not going to see their magnificence because you've hired somebody that's a round peg in a square hole. So he thought he had regret when he was done. He had grace. Wow. And he saw the perfection of it and he called his sister and he said, I had a judgment on you because of the difference between your mom. I knew my mom loved me. I knew I loved her. There was no question about it. I was judging myself because I wasn't there when she died. But I realized that you were there. And I just want to thank you for being there for mom to make her have the opportunity, give her the opportunity to resolve that before she died. I know that that was one of the most meaningful things and one of the most magnificent gifts you could give mom before she died. Thank you for being my sister and being at the right place at the right time to help me, my mom, and the family. I love you. That was the outcome instead of regret. Regret is an incomplete awareness of the hidden order that we're overlooking because we're addicted to our fantasy about how life's supposed to be instead of honoring the way it is. Thank you. Wow. Appreciating so much that you have a busy work and travel schedule. Are there any daily routines or habits that you think are important in your own life that help you stay present that you might tip us to? Prioritize what you feed your mind. Prioritize what you feed your body. Prioritize your actions. Prioritize your associations. Prioritize your spending. If you don't fill your day with priorities, it fills up with low priorities that weigh you down, devalue you. And as the world, if you devalue yourself, so will the world. If you value yourself, so will the world. Wow, wow, wow. Reflection. So take the time to identify what is the highest priority actions and the highest priority things you can be doing. There's a beautiful feedback from, the, from your business. Every symptom in your life is a feedback to let you know you're not being authentic. Somehow oh. you're, you're being exaggerating or minimizing yourself, not being yourself. And the moment you give yourself permission to be yourself, the feedback from the universe is something pretty profound. The universe really does a great job letting you know when you're really true and on, honest with yourself. Wow. So don't don't uh, allow yourself to do low priority things. Find out what the highest priority things is and stick to it. And try your best to try to employ other people to do the things that are not highest priority so they can do what's priority highest in their values and that way you're upgrading society and giving jobs and economics and opportunities to people, doing what you love, helping them do what they love. And in the process of doing it, you're exemplifying how to master life, prioritize things. 
Wow. If you don't prioritize your spending, you will have unexpected bills come in to let you know you could have saved that. Whoa. Whoa. On all that, literally and figuratively. One last question before we go four for four. Dr. Demartini, aside from teaching, what brings you the most joy? <laughs> teaching. <laughs> Researching. <laughs> Researching. I, I, uh, Researching for teaching. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, learning for teaching. I'm, I research right every single day and I teach every single day and I travel most every day. I live on a ship that travels full time and uh, I just happen to be in Houston temporarily. But I really am. I, if you look at any other area of my life, I'm kind of useless. <laughs> you know, well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know I, if your wife would say that. I don't know. I, if well, my my, my wife that. my wife passed away too. But oh, I've got, okay. Got well, I don't know if she would have said that. And I don't. But know I, I this is what I did. I told my girlfriend. I said, "Look, I'm good at teaching, researching, and writing, and pretty well everything else is not so great." If I was to hire uh, George Clooney or Hugh Jackman or stop, Brad Pitt stop. or Gerard Butler and to make love on my behalf, would you still love me? She said, I'd love you even more. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go four for four. Yeah. Okay. So you, I'm going to ask you four questions to which you'll get four answers. There are no right nor wrong answers. And the first question is you get to invite four people to dinner who have lived on earth from any time alive and present to through history. Who's at your table? Well, when I first moved home from Houston, from Hawaii to Texas, and Paul Bragg gave me a little affirmation to help me overcome my learning problems. He said, every single day, say, I am a genius and I apply my wisdom and never miss a day for the rest of your life. And say that every single day and sooner or later, the cells of your body will tingle with it and so will the world. I've never missed a day since. So I asked my mom, who's a genius mom? And she said, people like Albert Einstein and Da Vinci. And I said, okay. So I would love to have at the table, Albert Einstein, because he was an inspiration to me on many, many fronts in the study of physics and mathematics and cosmology and many others. I'd also like to have good old Socrates because he was the man who was wise enough to know that his knowledge was infinitesimal and what he didn't know is maximal and, and infinite. So he was the one that was considered the most humble, but yet the wisest at the time. So I'd like to meet Socrates. I think that would be a pretty good dynamic. I would also like to have Ralph Waldo Emerson, the transcendentalist there, because I loved his teachings. And I loved some of his writings, his selected writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson was an inspiration when I was in my early twenties. And, uh, that would be it. And then I would like to have myself there. Yeah. yeah. Um, in a time-lapse capacity from age 17 when I got my vision to this day and just have myself there and, and watch the evolution because I would make sure that there's not one component along that journey that I'm not grateful for because anything along that that you regret, anything you wish was different, means you haven't seen the whole picture and how perfect that was. It was Leibniz, the German philosopher in his discourse on metaphysics, who basically said at the very beginning of the book that there was a divine perfection, a divine beauty, a divine love, a divine order that few people get to know, but those that do, their lives are changed forever. 
I believe that there's a hidden order in our apparent chaos and our unwillingness to see the order is what holds us back from the magnificence of this experience called life. And I think that I wouldn't mind having myself making sure through time that all of those moments in the stream of consciousness were graced. Beautiful. Beautiful. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm going to give you five people so I can come to. That's yes, beautiful. Let's, let's, table. let's get there. <laughs> That's a beautiful table. Um, going two for four, what four musics are you listening to or artists and why that you care to share with our family? Um, I really can't say when, when I turned 17 and almost died, um, I actually, I was very much into music up until that point. And I <laughs> shut down some of the music because some of the symptoms when I listened to music were brought out. So I kind of mm -hmm. calmed down music and I didn't surround myself with a lot of music for many, many years. But what inspires me are the people that have been in my classes that are musicians. One is a, has three Grammys. And um, so any of my students that have done extraordinary things with music, one is a 80 years old who's a student of mine, believe it or not, even though he's older, um, who has been a concert pianist uh, literally since nine around the world. He started at three and he's 80 and he spent 13 hours a day doing piano. That gentleman is inspiring to have time with. My girlfriend is a famous singer and, and, and you know, actress and model, absolutely amazingly talented, incredible, incredible lady. That would be one. The Grammy winner and the lady I was just with in, in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles just a few days ago, who's a student who started and is doing incredibly well with her music today um, and literally on her way to going around the world too. Those people, only because they're the students that yes. I've got to watch transform and who have inspired me as much as they say I've inspired them. That's beautiful. And that's such a gift. That's a circular gift. Thank you. Um, how about books, though? Going three for four, which books do you recommend? I tell people, when people ask me about books, I've been blessed to do a bit of reading. And um, We're recommending yours. We're recommending your books. So you well, can go beyond. Well, <laughs> there's, there's a two-volume set by Mortimer Adler called Syntopicon Volumes 1 and 2 by Mortimer Adler. And it is on the great ideas by the greatest minds in the Western world over the last 2,700 years. And it's an inspiration. It's a body of knowledge that I believe it's about 1,800 pages, the two books. But it's a body of knowledge that I think is a PhD on life. And I encourage people to read that set Syntopican Volumes 1 and 2. Britannica puts it out. It's part of the Great Ideas set. And it's the, from the great books of the Western world. Mm -hmm. It's the first two volumes. I think every human being could benefit by reading through those volumes because you're standing on the shoulders of giants. And that's my dream when I was 17, to read the greatest teachings by the greatest minds who ever lived, stand on their shoulders, syncretize, synthesize, and organize that knowledge into a body of knowledge that will stand the test of time. And this piece of work is one of those pieces. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, 
Let's go four for four, shall we? Yeah, the two books or, or... You, you 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 those two books I think you made your four. Yeah, <laughs> those are four. <laughs> uh so if we're going four for four, we're talking advice and you've given incredible instruction to us. Is there any particular advice you will give us now that you don't believe has been conveyed fully or yet? in the conversation we've had. And if it is advice that was gifted you, please give homage to the author. Well, if you exaggerate yourself, you'll be humbled. If you'll minimize yourself, you'll be lifted. Your physiology, your psychology, your sociology and theology all are attempting to honor the magnificence of who you are. Your authentic self is most profound you. So see whatever happens in your life as a feedback to your authenticity and give yourself permission to listen to, you know, tune to it, intently to it and ask how specifically is whatever's happening in my life, helping me fulfill my mission of authenticity. That's a great little thing to do on a daily basis to contemplate and then realize that no matter what you've done or not done, you're still worthy of love because if you've been mean, Somebody else is balancing it to balance the niceness. And if you've been nice, somebody else is balancing to be the meanness. And sometimes when you're mean, sometimes you're being nice because you're not making you independent. Sometimes when you're nice, sometimes you're mean because you're making them independent. Transcend the moral hypocrisies and labels that block people from the truth of their heart. Dr. DiMartini, you have, you are lifting me and I know this family so much. It is regular for me to say from my heart to your home, thank you in this moment from the deepest part of my soul. I appreciate you coming to this conversation to lift my family and to welcome you to it. I can tell you I'm leaving it a better person better inclined, instructed, empath. And so on a personal level, I very deeply thank you. Thank Please you. be welcome back. Please you. be welcome back. Anytime, anytime. Thank you for the lovely questions, for the clear articulation that you have and clarity you have and giving me the opportunity to be with your, your family. Thank you.